I don't know if any of you guys get the uh, Zapiro cartoon sent to you via mail. Um, I subscribe to the Daily Maverick and a few other things, and that comes through every couple of days or weeks. And there was this cartoon that really struck me a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was called Religious Terror World Tour. <laughs> and it was um, this cartoon of death, or the Grim Reaper, going into an airport. And he was kind of leaving the city behind him, and the city was in flames, you know. Uh, there was chaos and destruction and devastation behind him. And he was going into this airport with his little wheelie bag and his scythe. You know, the Grim Reaper, like the black hooded robe and skeleton guy. And he was going in, and there was blood on his scythe, and there was kind of blood on the wheels of the wheelie bag, leaving this trail of blood behind him. Sounds like a really appealing picture. Welcome to church. And on that bag were all of these stickers of different places around the world. And it wasn't kind of the places you would want to go on holiday. These were not your bucket list destinations. These were the war-torn, terrible, hectic parts of the world. And the two that were highlighted or that were on top of the bag were Christchurch and Sri Lanka. And those are, obviously, as most of us know, places where there's been really tough um, violence and persecution and just terrorist attacks very recently. And um, the the Grim Reaper is wearing this T-shirt over his hood, which says World Religion Terror Tour. And it's kind of like one of those band T-shirts where there's like the name of the tour at the top and then all of the dates and destinations that the band will be going. And it was basically this commentary from Zapiro saying that all around the world, it's like these things are happening. You know, there's death, there's destruction, there's terrorist attacks. There is division going on between all of these groups of people. And that he was headed on to the next stop in the tour to bring about more of all of this chaos. I think the reality is, as we look at the news at the moment, there's just so much of that going on, man. There's so much violence. There's so much division. Uh, We live in an age of offense where it seems like people are offended so easily and respond so easily, whether it's what you see in the news or just like any comment section of anything on the internet. It's like no matter what you say, someone will be cross about it and will let you know. We live in this world of crazy, crazy division. I think this week for South Africa, we are going to vote. We're going to the polls. This is a really big week for us as a country, 25 years after the first free and fair democratic elections. And I think sadly, our country is still in a very divided place, you know, I think there was this beautiful dream 25 years ago of the rainbow nation. Uh, Every kind of people group in our country, people from different provinces, different languages, different races, different backgrounds, different stories, all coming together under this vision or this banner of a new South Africa. And the reality is it definitely hasn't fully materialized. You know, in some ways it has, but at best it's a muddied rainbow nation. And as we go to the polls this week, you know, there's this reality that the division continues. We are still living in a divided country. And in, um, I guess in Acts 15, what we see is how does the church handle division? Because this week as we come together, but like every single week, the question is, what if division gets into the church? Or maybe for us, how do we stop the division that's going on all around the world and in all of these different ways and in our country from coming into this community and into our hearts and dividing and separating us? And I think Acts 15 is an amazing passage that really the church that is faced with a similar situation, and we see how they faithfully follow and serve Jesus and at the same time live out their faith as brothers and sisters from really different backgrounds and situations and experiences and all of that. So that's what we're going to be looking at in Acts 15 today. So if you want to read from verse 1, it says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
Now, we've got a doctor in this church who's mad about circumcision at the moment. Every time I speak to him, he's just telling me about kind of the block he's in and what he's been doing over the last while. But the reality is for the early church at that time, there were no men in the new members courses. You know, like the ladies were there, there were some kids there, but none of the men wanted to go because joining the church meant like surgery. You know, it was quite a serious time in the church. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Sometimes the way the Bible is translated, it just sounds a little bit clunky. They had a big debate. They had a big disagreement over what these guys were coming and teaching. Um, so Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church in Antioch, They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, and I want you to notice, it's not all, it's not the majority, it's just some. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, some of you have been reading through Acts, and you've been just loving the momentum that's been building over the last while. You know, it's like been this exciting thing. The gospel is being preached. Disciples are being made. Churches are being planted. The kingdom of God is advancing. Mission accomplished. The church is doing what the church was made to do. And then you get to something like Acts 15, and you're like, why are they slowing down? Why are they losing momentum to kind of get together for this theological debate and powwow? Like, that seems silly. You know, there's stuff to be done. Just get out there and do it. Don't stop and just talk theology. But obviously, this was an important situation. And obviously, what was going on at this moment required theological clarity. They actually needed to do this because theology matters. The reality is what we believe determines what we're going to build. So, I mean, theology is important for each of our lives, the lives that we're building and what we're building as a church, what we believe really, really matters. And this Jerusalem cult, uh, council, we're going to determine some really, really important things that would shape the future of the church to us today. I think one of the things they would decide is what discipleship looked like. You know, if someone wanted to follow Jesus, what would you do with them? Like, what would you teach them? Like, what would you ask of them? What would you ask them to change? All of those things. What church membership looked like was really important here. You know, like coming into a community like this and being a part of it, what was required of you? And then probably most importantly, what is the Christian message? You know, like that is the most foundational and important and central thing. What do we actually believe? What is the gospel? So they were going to get together to define clarity around the gospel. And probably the big thing they were going to answer is, does the gospel teach that Jesus did it all or not? You know, is it all what he did for us or is it mainly what he did and a little bit of what we, like we do for ourselves? How does the gospel work? They were trying to work all of that out. And this is happening about 48 or 49 AD. So this is about 15 years after Jesus has died on the cross. He's ascended to heaven. The first church has started out. So this is still early days in the life of the church. They're still figuring everything out. But a lot has happened. The first church has started. Acts 1 and 2, we see Peter preaches the sermon, and literally thousands of people respond to it. They put their faith in Jesus, they get baptized, and they join the church. It sounds like a logistical nightmare. Can you imagine if like two or three or four or five thousand people joined Harbor City this week? 
Like, what do we do life group-wise? What do we do in terms of kids' ministry? How do we handle Sunday gatherings? We do not have space for another 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people. It would have been a really tricky time. And more people, more problems. <laughs> you know? The more people that become a part of this community, the more opinions and backgrounds and all sorts of things come into the mix, it's going to get a little bit messy. So the church has exploded and lots is going on. And not only does it grow once in Acts 1 and 2, but it feels like every chapter God is doing new stuff. New people are beginning to follow Jesus. The church is growing. There's so many dynamics to this. And over time, some of these people who've begun to follow Jesus, they're spreading out. You know, whether it's books of persecution or work or family or whatever it is, they're spreading everywhere and they're starting to tell other people about Jesus. And some of these people that are hearing the message don't come from a Jewish background. They didn't grow up going to synagogue when they were young. They don't have any of the history of the kind of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So this is all new to them. But they are in. They like are believing in Jesus. They want in on this thing. They want to be part of the Jesus movement. And they're getting involved. And now the church in Jerusalem, where it all starts, was a church made up pretty much only of Jews. It was a church that had a very Jewish flavor or style to it. And all of these Jews were like, they were into Jesus as the Messiah. But what happens is, as the gospel goes out to new places and these other church communities are popping up in places like Antioch, they're very different. These people didn't have a Jewish background. They were Gentiles. And the church that they were starting to form had a very Gentile flair or style or flavor to it. And the Jewish Christians weren't so sure what they thought about this. So these Jewish converts to Christianity, they didn't see themselves as converts at all. They actually just believed they were carrying on with the faith that they had always believed, you know. They grew up going to synagogue. They grew up being taught the Old Testament scriptures, Abraham and Isaiah and all of the prophets and Moses pointing ahead to the one who was to come, the Messiah who would come. And now they found him. Jesus has come on the scene. They've met him. They're worshiping him. He is the fulfillment of the scriptures. So they will serve him as Messiah. They haven't converted. They're just carrying on their faith. But for the Gentiles who are beginning to follow Jesus, they've converted. They were pagans before. They were part of a different religion. They served different gods, and they've converted and left that behind to follow Jesus. So what have they converted to? Like, what are they a part of now? Because they've changed. What they believe has changed. The way they've lived have changed. Their priorities have changed. And Jesus has become the center of everything. And when they've met him, They've experienced the life-changing power of the gospel. Their sins are forgiven. They know God. They found their Father in heaven who's poured out his love into their hearts. They're living this whole new life, new identity, new everything in him. But what are they? You know, Who are they? What are they converting to? Because they don't see themselves as Jews. They haven't joined into this Judaism thing. And they've kept their Gentile culture and foods and habits and rituals and traditions and all of these things. And it didn't make sense to them. Like, we're not Jews just because we follow Jesus. But for the Jews, it didn't make sense for them. They were following a Jewish Messiah. They were living out the Jewish scriptures. Of course, they needed to become Jews. They needed to go the whole way. For some of you, you've heard like the term cultural imperialism before. That's what is going on here, in a sense. I don't know if you've ever read those stories of European missionaries coming to Africa or other parts of the world, and they preach the message of Christ but they also enforced their culture on the local people. So they would preach, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. He is God, all of those things. But they would also say, you need to take on European culture if you're going to be a Christian. And those two things don't go together. It's exactly what we're seeing happening in Acts 15. And it's pretty easy to understand why these Jewish followers of Jesus felt this way. 
like everything they had known has been a bit threatened, you know. All of these outsiders from synagogue life are wanting to come in and experience this, but they don't understand it. They don't have the background. They're not doing it right, and they're worried everything is going to be diluted and ruined. And this is why in Acts 15, churches from around the region and Christians from around the region come together for this power having this big council to talk theology, to talk about the gospel and to say, how do we handle this issue? What is the right way forward? What should we believe and teach and do? I think probably the biggest thing here was the Jews just being so confused. They're saying, you guys want to serve a Jewish Messiah. You guys are learning the Jewish scriptures. You are coming to a Jewish place of worship. Of course you should be Jews. But for the Gentiles, the reality was this wasn't just going to a course and learning some theology. For them to become like Christians, to go all the way in, they were also demanding some flesh. Acts 15.1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's quite a price to pay if you're a grown-up person, you know. And I guess what's going on here is this isn't just like a quick op. This isn't just a quick surgery and you carry on. Circumcision is representing following all of the Jewish law. You know, you're all of a sudden going to live out all of the ceremonial law and ways. Now we're not talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't lie, all of those things. He's talking more about the ceremonial law that God gave to the Jewish people. This was their way of how they worshipped God and how they engaged in him. This was a bunch of rituals and food regulations and washings and the Sabbath and a number of other things that actually God had given them as a culture when they were in the desert. This was their way of life. This was their way of relating to God. This gave them an identity as the people of God. This like actually differentiated them from all the other people on the face of the earth. This is who you are and this is how you live. And because of that... They almost had this spiritual pride, you know. We're the people of God. We do things the right way. Our culture is the culture like handed down by God. You guys need to adopt it. And to any of these new followers of Jesus that weren't doing the things they did, who weren't doing it their way, they were starting to look down their nose at them, be a bit self-righteous and a bit judgmental, and they were starting to exclude them from fellowship. There was division that was coming in the church. But all of those things that God had given them They were symbolic. They weren't intended to actually bring you to God or actually wash you clean or actually forgive you or make you holy or pure. They were pointing ahead to the day that Jesus would come and he would do it for us. You know, in that day when that happened, it wouldn't be something we did or something that we had to act out. This was what Jesus would do once and for all, for all of his followers. All of those symbols, all of the cultural points that were pointing ahead to him would be fully and finally fulfilled once and for all. And I think what is such a big thing here is they're having to learn this, that there's a change. You know, they're realizing that actually they had been putting their faith in Jesus and, and that's always a dangerous place to be. You know, for these Gentiles coming in, they only knew Jesus alone. You know, they'd had to give up everything for Jesus alone. They were saved by him, not what they did. But for these Jews, there was a bit of confusion. Is it Jesus and circumcision? Is it Jesus and fulfilling all of the moral law? Is it Jesus and anything? Because if you and I are thinking that way, we're in danger. That is not the message which Jesus has preached. It's not the gospel, and it's not what we should believe. Now, I know some of you are sitting here, and you're like, Grant, thank you for the really boring history lesson on Jewish and Greek history, but it's not relevant to my life. Like, you might enjoy that kind of thing, but I'm not really too thrilled. 
But the reason this is so important for us is at the heart of this is the question, was what Jesus did for us enough? Was what Jesus did for us enough? And some of us say, yes, of course, Grant, yes, it was enough, it was enough. But then we go back to our normal lives where we're living Jesus and faith. Jesus and having a quiet time. Jesus and going to church at least twice a month, otherwise I'm in trouble. Jesus and tithing, Jesus and serving, Jesus and not doing this, Jesus and. So we think, yes, of course it's Jesus only, but in our hearts we've got these other kind of additional salvation parameters. And if we live up to them, we're good with God, and if we don't, we're in a bad place. The gospel of Jesus is not Jesus and, it's Jesus alone. What are you trusting in today? And I guess the, the question that they're trying to answer is what gives me confidence before God that I am accepted? Like now, what gives me confidence before God that I'm accepted now and one day when I die that I'll enter into eternal life? What gives me confidence? I hope you can answer that for yourself today because everything would rise or fall on the answer to that question. You might have heard this quote before, but a German theologian named Rupertus Meldenius, great name, He said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity or grace. I'll read it again. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And Acts 15 was a debate about essentials. You know, what is essential to Christianity? What is essential to our faith and what is not? So if we're talking essentials, These are the fundamental things. These are the absolutes. You have to believe this if you're going to be a Christian. Like this is actually a good moment to kind of checkbox this. Do I believe these things or not? Some fundamentals would be that there is only one God, that Jesus is God, that he is the only way to God, that he is the Savior, that Jesus literally died on the cross for the sins of the world, that Jesus literally rose from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death, and bringing new life to those who believed in him. And if we believe in him by faith, we will be saved. Those are some essential things. If you are going to be a Christian or become one today, we need to hold to and believe those. But there's a whole list of non-essentials too. I'll just share one with you. These non-essentials are kind of views or convictions that we can have that might be shaped by Scripture, but that are not absolute. You know, these are not life or death issues. I think maybe a good example of that is creation. Some of us believe in this room that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. You know, we believe it. That's what the Bible says, done. Some of us have looked at it and we've gone, well, I don't know if it's like a literal seven days. You know, maybe it's more like seven ages or eras or 7,000 years or million years or billion years. You know, maybe God did it over a while. And that word age actually means period of time, not like day. And actually, maybe it was like a longer thing. You know, whatever you believe in this room, That is not essential to salvation. These are not life or death matters. I think we've got all sorts of opinions around the room about something like that. And then on top of that, maybe at an even softer level of non-essentials are some of our preferences. And these things, again, probably are shaped by our personality, by our upbringing, by our experience in life, hopefully a little bit by the Bible, but definitely a lot of who we are. So for instance, I love a good glass of Shiraz. Like, if you were a red wine person, to me, Shiraz at the moment is just doing it for me. And nice, like peppery, spicy, rich red wine. It's, it's a real joy. Some of you are going, red wine? It's all about white wine. Or I'm a rosé person. I, I don't know. Or some of you don't like wine at all. You're more a, I don't know, beer person, Coke Zero person, whatever floats your boat. And some of you are sitting here and you're going, I just don't drink. Like, I'm not an alcohol person. I never have been. I never will be. I don't drink the stuff. Like, those are preferences. 
Some of us in this room hated the songs we sung today because you're all about the hymns, man. You're just like, come now, fount of every blessing. I wish we could just get in some of those old songs. Just miss the golden oldies, the hymn book vibe. That's your, that's your deal. Whereas some of us are like Hillsong till death. Joel Houston is tattooed under your arm. Bethel under the other arm. Modern worship is your gig. You're much more an oceans kind of person. <laughs> Big oceans fans over here. <laughs> or enemies of oceans. I don't know what's going on. Some of us read different Bible translations. Maybe you're an ESV person, an NIV person, an NLT, CSB, whatever it is. Some of you are like, there are multiple versions of the Bible. These are preference issues. These are not essential. Some of us are cat people. Some are dog people, tea people, coffee people. My wife is slipping into the heresy of rooibos at the moment, which I'm really worried about. But I know there's some other rooibos people in the room. But these are preference things. And I just think for us as a church, even this week as we come to vote, we can believe exactly the same thing from an essential point of view and vote very differently this week. I'm pretty sure in this room we've got people voting for the ANC, the DA, the EFF, the IFP, the ACDP, and every other party under the sun in this room today. These are preferences. These are not essentials. But there's also always distortions of this. Liberalism is when we treat an absolute like a preference. This is where someone says, all truth is relative, or there's no absolute truths. Or maybe like you're chatting to someone, helping them to grow in their faith, and you read them a scripture. Say, this is what the Bible says. And they say, Grant, you know what? Like, I get it. Like, I know it says that, but I just don't feel like that's true for me. You know, that's liberalism, where we like actually take absolutes and make them preferences. Or legalism is when we treat a preference like an absolute. We make a non-essential thing into an essential. Drinking alcohol is a sin. I can't believe he drinks Shiraz. That's wrong. Or how can you vote for that political party if you're a Christian? Do you know what they believe? Or wearing shorts to church is a sin. I'm not pointing you guys out, but I can just see your knees, you know. So shame on you, shame. Um, but there are some churches where what you wear is really, really important. And I have this friend named Brad Sarian. Some of you know him. He's preached here before. He was sitting in a coffee shop working the one day, and a pastor from another church came up to him and said, Hey, Brad. He's like, Hey, nice to see you. So some friends from my church came and visited Restored LA the other day. I said, oh, that's, that's great. They told me you were preaching in shorts. He's like, yeah, probably was. Like, I do that fairly often. I said, now listen, I know you're young. So I just want to let you in. It's so condescending, hey? So condescending. I know you're young. So I just want to tell you something. You really should be wearing a suit to church. And more than that, when you preach, you have to be wearing a suit. Said, so you know Sports Center on TV, which is an American sports show? Said, so those men, they only represent sport and they're wearing suits when they do it. When you get up to preach, you are representing God and you're doing it wearing shorts. Shame on you. So Brad, who probably shouldn't have done this, he popped back and he said, do you have a quiet time in a suit? <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what the person said to that. For those of you who don't know what a quiet time, that's your time of praying and reading and spending time with God. I don't think the guy did. Legalism is where we treat a preference like an absolute. It's got to be this way. And this is what's going on in Acts chapter 15. In verse 5 we read, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, necessary, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
The danger going on here in Acts 15 is that legalism could separate and split the church and break it apart into the Jew- Jewish church and the Gentile church. What a sad thing that would be. Acts 15 verse 7. And after there had been much debate, this was a contentious issue, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Notice he uses a lot of us and them language, we and they. He's showing that actually the church is divided and he's fighting to bring the church together as one in Christ. He's trying to break down all of these things that divide so that everyone would be united by Jesus no matter what their differences are. And he says to his Jewish brothers, guys, who are we kidding? We've had the law for ages. We don't do all that well at obeying it ourselves, you know. And now we want to put that on other people when Jesus isn't requiring that of them. Why do we want to do that? And what good does it do them anyway? Because we know that we aren't saved by obeying the law, but by grace, the grace of Jesus, just like they are. It would have been like this mic drop moment. Room goes uh, completely quiet. Everyone's like, that's a pretty good point, Peter. Guys, I just want to say that this passage is not saying that God doesn't care about sin. He does. God calls us to repent of sin. He calls us to living holy lives. But what Peter is saying here is none of us are ever going to live up to the pure and perfect record of Jesus. None of us are good enough. None of us are moral enough. None of us have the self-control and self-will. We'll all fail. But what Jesus has done is he has come and washed us clean. He has come and he has made us pure. He has come and he has given us his righteousness. We are new in him. He has done it all for us. It's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus. And when Peter sits down, all eyes are on James. I think people are like, whoa, whoa, that was like a big moment. Let's see what James says. Because James at that time was leading the church in Jerusalem. Seems like Peter had started out leading it and then had been traveling a lot and James had kind of taken the helm. And this James guy was Jesus' biological brother. So if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, to me, the fact that Jesus' brothers and sisters and mother started to follow him as God means it must be true. Like that to me is huge proof for the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. And James gets up and he speaks and he says in Acts 15 verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. James wanted to make sure that they didn't make it difficult for those who were exploring what Jesus had said to come to him and meet him and be saved. He wanted to take every single obstacle out of the way so that people could meet Jesus, that everyone could meet Jesus. And I think, sadly, the church hasn't always been too good at this. I think, sadly, the church has often put those obstacles in the way of people who are interested or come into our orbit want to look at Jesus. I was part of a church when I was in my teenage years where it was really looked down on for women to wear trousers or jeans or shorts. So... Any of you who are wearing trousers or jeans or shorts today, again, it's not just you two. It's the rest of the ladies in the room too. Skirts or dresses were seen as the more godly option for what women should wear. 
And this was definitely a preference, culture, non-essential kind of thing. But the reality is anyone coming into this church not knowing kind of this unwritten rule would over time start to feel like a little bit judged for what they were wearing. And I remember my mom, who's not a Christian, she's not a follower of Jesus, coming a couple of times, my sister telling her, listen, at our church you're meant to wear a skirt or a dress. That's just the way things are. And my mom had to make this decision, like, do I want to come in and fit in with the way they do things? Because people are obviously watching. They're looking for what I wear and what I do and how I act and all of these things. She knew that she was in danger of sticking out like a sore thumb if she didn't know the way things work around here. So my mom probably did come one or two times, but I can't blame her for not coming more because there were these obstacles that were put in the way, these difficulties that were put in the way of people coming to hear about and begin to follow Jesus. And what James and Peter are trying to do is remove them completely. So what do they say? What do Peter, James, Paul, Barnabas, together with the other apostles and elders decide? Acts 15, verse 28 and 29. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So what exactly are they saying here? This is my translation of those verses. Gentiles, be careful what you eat around your Jewish brothers. You see, food is a sensitive and significant thing to them because of their traditions, history, and culture. And can we all disagree and be on the same page here? We know that you guys have got quite wild and adventurous sexual past from before you followed Jesus. Can we just clarify that sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed, but only between one man and woman and only inside of marriage. If you can do these things, it will go a long way to promote unity in the church. Farewell. And all the Gentile guys are praising God. They're like, woohoo, we don't have to have the up. We're good to go. The membership like list for the new members course just like tripled that week. All the guys were in, they were finally going to do it. But for the Gentiles, they realize they can keep their culture They can wear what they used to wear, eat what they used to eat, worship the way that they're used to worshiping. They don't have to adopt this new culture just to follow and serve Jesus. And this simple agreement, these simple kind of clarifying things, help to clarify what is the gospel. Jesus has done it all. And then to promote unity in the church. We can come together and be one people. We don't have to separate and break in a number of directions. And I want you to imagine that the church started in Durban today rather than in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The gospel is going out and disciples are being made and churches are being planted and the kingdom of God is advancing. It's like an amazing time of momentum and mission. It's really, really exciting. And inside the church, these people are coming with very different backgrounds, people who spoke a different language growing up or at home, people from different cultures, from different countries, from different provinces, people who've had very different religious and cultural and ethnic experiences growing up. And now together together in one church, with their experiences and preferences and stories all at play and what it means for them to be there. And they're trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus in their skin in the city at this time. Because like as much as we can make that hypothetical, that just is our reality. Like that is our story, Harbor City. That is who we are as a church. We all have these different stories and backgrounds and experiences and non-essential preferences that we bring together into a community like this as we fuss out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And you can imagine the great grace 
that we require for ourselves and for one another to be one community together and keep unity in that. I just think for us, there are many things in this room, in our hearts, in our lives, that can divide us. These non-essential things. I'm not talking about essentials, non-essential things. And I want to call us to what it says in Acts 15, to not add our preferences or opinions to the gospel and to fight for unity in this community so that God can do the work he's wanting to do through us. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Can we stand and pray together?